Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor, founder, and imperial wizard of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. Welcome to Last Week in the Church, the show where we are faithfully devoted to reheating stale news and serving it up piping hot. Here's what's on the menu this week. We begin with the Vatican trying to censor the Pope and thereby making the massage the message. Second, a new twist in an old Vatican mystery story involving the 1983 disappearance of a 13-year-old girl whose family lived in the Vatican. Next, the Pope talks Ukraine, and the Ukrainians say the Pope's on his way. Next, an Italian bishop channels his inner Grinch and tells his young flock, no, Virginia, there is no Santa Claus. And finally, why the American seminary in Rome is neither accidental nor unimportant. That's what we've got on the other side, so please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, December 13th. Here in Italy, this is the feast of Santa Lucia. St. Lucy's Day, which may not be a huge deal where you come from, but it is really big here. There is this tradition that Santa Lucia used to bring gifts to the Christians who were hiding in the catacombs during the era of the Roman persecutions. And so in contemporary Italy, this is a day where kids get gifts. And so it's like, it's a down payment on Christmas, basically. And it's another excuse to go to stores and buy things for your kids. But it is faithfully observed and joyfully celebrated here in Italy. One of the consequences of that is it took us forever to get over to our studio today because it's a holiday, and so even cab drivers don't like to work on this day. But in any event, here we are, and here's what we've got. We begin with the Vatican's rather silly attempt to censor some recent remarks by Pope Francis. Pope Francis, as you will remember, recently took a trip to Cyprus and to Greece, and as he always does on the way back from that trip, he conducted an airborne press conference with the journalists traveling with him. One of the questions he took was about the curious case of the former Archbishop of Paris, Michel Oputi, who recently resigned after a media expose suggested he'd been having an affair, a consensual affair, with an adult woman. Now, Archbishop Opeti has denied that there was anything sexual about the relationship, nevertheless conceded there were some, quote, ambiguous elements to it. Pope Francis, in addressing the case, said, look, what did Opeti do that was so bad? So we're talking about some little caresses, some massages on his secretary. But really, the sins of the flesh are not the worst ones. Well, the thing of it is that reference to massages on the secretary sort of caught everyone off guard because no one had ever suggested that Oputi had performed massages on his secretary. The, the story about the relationship came to light because Oputi had sent a message, not a massage, but a message to his secretary that was actually intended for this woman and it ended up in the hands of some reporters in France. Now, in fact, this was so confusing that at the time, reporters on the plane had to listen to the tape very carefully 
to make sure that Francis actually had said massage and not message, but in the end, it was clear he had said massages. So that was in the reporting that everybody issued as soon as the plane landed and the embargo had lifted. Now, a couple days later, the Vatican quietly revised its own official transcript of this exchange with reporters to take out this reference to the secretary. So now, in the Vatican's version, the Pope's remarks read, there were some small caresses and some massages. No mention of who, to whom these massages were directed. Now, first of all, if you think about it, of all the sort of ham-handed and self-defeating things that the Vatican sometimes gets itself involved in, this is one of the silliest because the Pope speaks these words in front of more than 70 reporters, each one of whom is rolling tape. They're all recording it. After the press conference is over, they spend the next hour or so painstakingly transcribing every syllable that the Pope says. So the notion that you can sort of cancel this from history is just, well, you know, I mean, it's so ridiculous as to barely require comment. But what is interesting about this is that the Vatican didn't take out the reference to massages to court. They simply took out the reference to the secretary. So they're sort of standing by the massage thing. Now, given that nobody else has ever suggested that Oputi was performing massages on anyone, there are really two logical possibilities here. One, the Pope simply misspoke. He, he confused messages and massages. He ended up saying massages, but didn't really mean it. Now, if that's the case, you wonder why the Vatican just doesn't say that. I think when you're talking about a Pope who is 84 years old, and has lots more important things to deal with than whether one of his archbishops is giving somebody massages, I think everybody would understand that there was simply a kind of moment of confusion. Things broke down. It is what it is. The Vatican, however, never likes to admit that the Pope made a mistake, and so they just won't do it. Now, the other logical possibility here is that Pope Francis knows something we don't, that is, that he has additional information about the Opeti case, which may help explain why he accepted the resignation so quickly. If that's the case, probably best to be transparent about it, especially since transparency is allegedly one of the watchwords of this pontificate. So either way, probably trying to edit the first draft of history to make a problem go away isn't generally the best way to deal with it. In fact, all it has accomplished is ensuring that we are talking about massages well after whatever otherwise probably would have been the sell-by date of that comment. All right, next, a new twist in an old Vatican mystery. So, since 1983, which is when 13-year-old Emanuela Orlandi disappeared, she was the daughter of a father who worked in the prefecture of the papal household, and whose family had a residence on Vatican grounds. It has long been suggested there had to be some Vatican connection to her disappearance. And believe me, every theory and its opposite has been floated over the last 40 years. The new twist is this. A former procurator of Rome, that's basically the district attorney of Rome, the chief prosecutor, 
by the name of Giancarlo Capaldo, has made comments in which he suggested that in 2012, when Benedict XVI was still Pope, he was approached by two senior prelates of the Vatican. He has not identified these individuals, but he says two senior prelates of the Vatican who basically proposed a deal. And the deal was, if the procurator, sorry, the procurator of Rome would legally request the exhumation of a mob boss by the name of Enrico de Paetis from the Basilica of Santa Polonare here in Rome, where he had been buried in the crypt at the request of the family because he had been a big time benefactor, I guess. If they would formally request his exhumation and relocation, in other words, get him out of there because it was embarrassing to the Church of Rome that a mob boss was buried in one of their premier basilicas, then in exchange, they would provide all the information they had to try to relocate the remains of Emanuela Orlandi. However, Capaldo said that that deal, uh, it seemed to be going fine for a while, but it fell apart because his term as procurator ended and a new guy took over. Footnote, you know who that new guy was? It was an Italian lawyer by the name of Giuseppe Pignatone, who, who put in a term as the procurator of Rome, and then after he retired, was named the chief justice of the Vatican Tribunal, which today, he is, means he is presiding over the Vatican's trial of the century about financial fraud, with its chief defendant being Cardinal Angelo Becciu. Anyway, Capaldo has said that if he is summoned by either the Vatican Tribunal or an Italian Tribunal, and he is deposed, he will provide the names of these senior Vatican officials who proposed this deal. The obvious suggestion being, the Vatican knows more than it's saying. This has been seized upon by Orlandi's brother, Pietro Orlandi, who has become a champion for trying to find out what happened to his sister and for disappeared persons in Italy generally. He actually hosts a TV series called The Disappeared on Italian TV, where he talks about these cases, which the Italians call Jolly, which literally means yellow, and it's their reference to a mystery story. What all this means, of course, is that the story of Emanuele Orlandi and what the Vatican knows and when it knew it is going to be in the air for a while longer. It has been, in some ways, Italy's most enticing Vatican mystery for almost 40 years. No indications that it's going to fade from view anytime soon. All right, third up this week. The Pope talks Ukraine. The Pope has engaged since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, that is, this Russian-backed separatist campaign in the eastern part of the country. The Pope has often engaged in gestures indicating his concern for Ukraine. For instance, a few years ago, he asked for a special collection among European churches to support the suffering church in Ukraine. He has visited the Ukrainian parish here in Rome to manifest his concern, but he hasn't often addressed the situation verbally, particularly in a way that could be construed as critical of Russia. 
because, of course, the Vatican is engaged in a long-running game of kind of high-stakes diplomatic poker with Russia. It wants to improve its relationships with Russia and therefore is loath to do anything uh, that might upset the diplomatic and geopolitical apple cart. However, this Sunday, Pope Francis came about as close as he's likely to. He began during his traditional Sunday Angelus address with voicing his sadness that last year there were more, that, that is this year, 2021, there had been more armaments sold around the world than in the previous year, 2020, and then said he wanted to address a prayer to the powerful and influential people of the world that at long last, peace will replace the arms trade, and said in particular, he prays that the new year will bring peace to Ukraine. Now, since Russia is a major player in the global arms trade, and because Russia is kind of the agent provocateur in Ukraine, this was seen as indirectly critical of the Russian rule in stoking this conflict in Ukraine. Of course, it comes at a time when many people are worried that Russia may be getting ready to gear up its campaign in Ukraine. The foreign minister of the UK recently said that out loud and said that there are many nations who are concerned about an expansion of the conflict in, uh, in Ukraine, and so the Pope's remarks in that regard are obviously timely. Of course, part of the Pope's concern for the situation in Ukraine, apart from the basic fact that he sees himself as a peace Pope and wants to try to promote reconciliation in all global hotspots, but in addition to that, there is some home cooking going on, too, because Ukraine is home to the Greek Catholic Church. It is the largest of the Eastern Rite churches in communion with Rome. It is also an extremely significant player in Ukrainian affairs. And if there is an expansion of the conflict in Ukraine, then the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church will be on the front lines, not simply providing humanitarian relief, but also suffering the consequences of that conflict. And, and Pope Francis obviously would hope to avoid that. Now, at the, t at the same time that the Pope is speaking out on Ukraine, the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Major Archbishop Shevchuk, has been giving interviews, including to our own Inez San Martin at Crux, in which he is predicting, essentially, that Pope Francis is going to visit Ukraine in 2022. He has said this visit has not been formally announced, obviously, otherwise we would have heard. But, he says, they are already in the preparation phase, and the Pope privately has given them assurances that he is going to come. Now, if Pope Francis does visit Ukraine in 2022, and if the conflict is still underway, that would make this arguably the Pope's highest stakes visit since he went to the Central African Republic several years ago while a conflict there was still raging. Obviously, the Pope's agenda would be to try to, well, in the short term, provide a brief respite because it's, un it's unlikely that there would be major combat operations while the Pope is in town. But more broadly speaking, obviously, he would hope to provide impetus towards an ultimate resolution of that conflict. If the Pope travels to Ukraine in 2022, 
It will be the first time a pope has been to Ukraine since John Paul visited in the year 2000. I covered that trip. It was one of the, I think at the end of the day, if I had to rate the top five most dramatic visits uh, that John Paul ever made, Ukraine would probably be on the list. And the same undoubtedly will be true if Francis goes. So obviously a story well worth tracking. In the meantime, we will see if the Pope's words, even before his travel schedule, have any impact on whether Ukraine erupts in the days to come. All right, we shift now from Central Eastern Europe to Il Bel Paese, Italy, and specifically the island of Sicily in the far north, or rather far south of Italy, where, look, I don't know if you're a sports fan. I am, and I, I often will watch SportsCenter on ESPN. And you know how SportsCenter will occasionally do the not top 10 plays of the day, like the biggest like bonehead moves and faux pas of the day, like, you know, the guy who is in the clear for 60 yards running to the end zone and then manages to fumble the ball on the one and the other team recovers, right? Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Well, I, I would hazard the guess that if you were going to do a not top 10 homilies from one week ago, somewhere near the top of that list would be a homily that Bishop Antonio Stagliano of the Diocese of Noto in Sicily delivered, where really unasked by anybody, I mean, this was completely unsolicited, Bishop Stagliano decided to wade into the question of whether there really is a Santa Claus. And out loud and in front of a congregation that included lots of kids who presumably, well, an hour before that, still believed in Santa Claus, he delivered the news that Santa Claus is a complete fiction, doesn't exist, and volunteered the opinion that it was actually an invention of the Coca-Cola company for marketing purposes. Now, Truth of it is, that's a bit of an oversimplification, oversimplification of history. It is true that Coca-Cola in the United States helped, you know, market Santa Claus in the 1930s. But even before that, the figure of Santa Claus was becoming quite popular. There was a famous cartoon by Thomas Nast, for instance, in 1927 in The New Yorker that, that made Santa Claus a figure of national renown. I mean, it is true that Coca-Cola probably turned a pretty nickel over the years, however, from the association of the red of Santa's outfit and the red of the Coke logo. But whatever. Point is, a bishop stood in the pulpit and told his flock that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Now, this did not play real well with some of the moms in the Diocese of Noto, who maybe kind of felt it was up to them when to break the news to their kids, and they weren't really expecting their bishop to do it at Sunday Mass. By the way, the bishop went on to argue that if you want somebody to, to celebrate, it should really be St. Nicholas, because he was a real guy, and he embodied, embodied Christian virtues. I mean, he did have a point to make, I suppose. Nevertheless, that did not leave the moms of Noto placated, and they made their displeasure known. The diocese, in short order, was compelled to issue a statement that was basically an apology. They said, look, we're really sorry. The, the bishop didn't intend to take the place of the parents in this diocese, didn't intend to make anybody upset. 
He was just trying to make a point about the spirit of the Christmas season and so forth and so on. You know, it remains to be seen whether that apology will be accepted. But I'm going to go on a limb and predict that after the fracas in Noto, there won't be many more Catholic bishops in other parts of the world who decide to volunteer their personal views about the reality of Santa Claus from the pulpit this Christmas season. Probably a case in which discretion truly is the better part of valor. Uh, all right, finally this week, the American Seminary in Rome, the formal name for which is the Pontifical North American College, or as we call it around here, the NAC. The NAC, is kind of one of those ports of call for Americans who whoosh through the internal city. If you are an American expat in Rome, it's one of those places occasionally that serves as a gathering point where you can catch up with the other Americans you know. One of the occasions for that every year is their Founders Day luncheon, which comes on December 8th, because it was on December 8th in 1858, I believe, when Pope Pius IX formerly, formally opened the North American College. That was when it was still located on the Via dell'Umiltà in downtown Rome. The main campus has subsequently moved to the Janiculum Hill. The, this big sprawling facility was built there in the 1950s. But uh, in any event, so they celebrate the, the, the college's foundation every year on December 8th, and they invite Americans who are in Rome to lunch. My wife and I were lucky enough to be on the guest list this year. And listen, uh, generally, it's just, it's a good time. You, you go to Mass. Cardinal Edward O'Brien celebrated the Mass this year in this gorgeous chapel at the NAC. And then afterwards, you go down the hall to the main lunchroom where you have this big meal and generally eat really well. That was certainly true again this year. Although, footnote, the next time you guys decide to put filetto voronoff on the menu, give me a call first, will you? Because I got a version of it that will just rock your world. Uh, filetto voronoff is a, a, an Italian way of making steak with this particular sauce. It happens to be one of my very favorite dishes, and I have spent a lot of time refining my technique. So seriously, give me a call. But anyway, that aside, meal was fantastic. The company was wonderful. The wine was abundant. And then kind of the crescendo of the event comes at the end where there are three toasts delivered every year to, well, so you begin with a toast to the Pope. Then there's a toast to the United States. And then there's a toast to the NAC itself. And every year, they are delivered by some of the students at the NAC. Usually these are guys who are already priests, so they've already been ordained and they're in Rome for graduate studies. And one of the toasts delivered this year, it was the first one, it was delivered by a priest by the name of Father Zach Rodriguez, who is from the Diocese of Austin in Texas. I just found especially moving. So Father Rodriguez began by telling a story. He said that when he was doing his first four years at the NAC, basically an undergrad, I guess, pre-ordination, at one point he had been asked to be a book bearer 
at one of the papal liturgies. This happens a lot. Seminarians at the NAC are often asked to play roles at papal masses because you need a lot of people and they're always willing to do it. And so he had been a book bearer. And what was not explained to him about this is that in addition to bearing the books during the mass, he was also going to hold the book for Pope Francis when he vested privately before the mass. So Father Rodriguez said when he got to St. Peter's and went into the basilica, the first thing that happened is he was standing with everybody else who was going to take part in the mass. The Pope comes in. He's his usual ebullient, avuncular self. He goes around greeting everybody, cracking jokes, making them feel comfortable, and so on. Then he said the next thing that happened was that then Father, now Bishop Guido Marini, at the time the papal master of ceremonies, came up to him and said, you're going to be holding the book while the Pope vests. Come with me. So they go into this private sacristy. Marini shoves the book in, in Zach's hand and gives him only one instruction. Don't talk to the Pope. <laughs> and so Rodriguez got the message. And so then Marini leaves. A couple of minutes later, Pope Francis comes in by himself to, to vest for Mass. And Rodriguez said what he saw really struck him. Said when, when Francis walked into that room and he was by himself, it was as if he sank. That's the word he used. He sank into himself. Said, it, 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 this wasn't the sinking of a guy who's been putting on an act, right, and now can take off a mask and be his real self. He said, no, this was the sinking of a guy who was carrying this enormous weight on his shoulders all the time. The weight of the entire world, it's heartache, it's agony, it's pain. The weight of the whole church in its vicissitudes, in its agonies, in its pain. And for one moment, he could sort of set that weight down. And then Father Rodriguez said he, he watched Pope Francis pray these prayers of vesting with a kind of reverence in intensity that was just absolutely singular. And he said, that is, Father Rodriguez said later during his, this toast, that to this day, it affects the way, that experience affects the way he prays for the Pope. He says he prays now not just for the office of the papacy, but for the man who was called to carry that incredible burden. And it affects the way he thinks about the papacy, the sympathy he feels for whoever plays that role. And now look, here's the thing. You could acquire that inside a lot of ways, I suppose. But the odds of acquiring go up significantly if you're in Rome spending time in and around the Vatican. During another one of the toasts, the, the priest delivering the toast noted that when Pope Paul VI, now St. Paul VI, visited the NAC back in the day, he said that the presence of an American seminary in Rome is neither accidental nor unimportant. I think leaving a kind of etching on someone's priesthood the way that moment that Father Rodriguez was able to share privately with the Pope, that's a pretty good illustration of why the American presence in Rome is neither accidental nor unimportant. The traditional toast of the knack at the end ends with the singing of a hymn called Ad Multos Anos, meaning, may you have many more years. So, to the Pontifical North American College, belatedly, on the occasion of your foundation, 
the wish from everyone at Crux to you is ad multosanos. That's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will be here next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. For the next seven days, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.